You're listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. This series explores how Jesus' vision for our lives creates a people and a place we want to be a part of. And now, here's today's message. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The wind came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his hand house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Um, if I could hop in a time machine and, and go back and preach one sermon to a 25-year-old Sean Barden, it would be this sermon. And the importance of what I'm going to say is kind of betrayed by the simplicity of what I'm going to say. Meaning I could probably sum up my whole message for you in two minutes and you would nod and agree and say amen and we could forego the rest of it. And 25-year-old Sean would probably do the same thing. He'd say, yeah, 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 of course, I know this. But knowing what I know about him and knowing what I know about Jesus' warnings, I would look him in the eye and I'd say, no, 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 you, you need to know this. You know this, but you don't really know this. And so that same tension you're going to feel this morning, you're going to be like, okay, this is, this is obvious. This is ABCs. But it's not. And our lives betray that we don't really know what Jesus is going to say to us today. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in, okay? Lord, thank you that you, you want us to know your heart. You want us to know your truth so that we could live into your truth and experience the transforming power of Jesus' life. So would you help us do that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when I was a kid, I remember when my family took a big step forward in being cultured and sophisticated. It was when my parents bought a set of Collier's encyclopedias. 26 volumes, black and red, leather bound that we proudly displayed in our living room. If you had them, you showed them off because they cost a small fortune back then. Everything that you wanted to know from aardvarks to Zurich was all there in these 26 volumes. It was my generation's Google. Today, of course, um, those 26 volumes of information seem ridiculously sparse and outdated. Back then, if I wanted to learn something about honey badgers, I grabbed volume H and I looked up honey badgers and I read a little paragraph about honey badgers. Today, if I want to know about honey badgers, I Google it and I got 14 million hits. 
videos of honey badgers hunting, videos of them feeding, videos of them playing, videos of them nursing their young. Every article ever written by a zoologist about honey badgers are all there at the tip of my finger. The volume of information available to us today is mind-blowing, which is why nobody's going door-to-door peddling 26 books for two grand because I have a whole encyclopedia set worth of information just on honey badgers right here at the tip of my finger. This is why we call this period of history that we are in the information age, because the sheer volume and accessibility to information is mind-blowing, and it's accelerating daily. I miss those nostalgic days when everything you ever wanted to know sat on one shelf in your living room. Now, if you're like me, if you're of a certain age, your parents probably had an encyclopedia set as well because in our culture, we love information. We love knowledge, and rightfully so, because we believe that information is the key that unlocks transformation in our lives. And you see that confidence everywhere in our culture. What happens when an outbreak of bullying happens in a school? Our reflex reaction is we need to have better teaching on anti-bullying to our students. Our first response to any type of crisis or struggle is better education, more information, better knowledge. Because we think information is the key to transformation. If we know the right things, then the right things will happen as a result. Now maybe there was a stronger case to be made that that's a complete picture back, you know, when information was analog and it didn't come at us so quickly as it does today, but now, In our culture, the sheer colossal quantity of information that is coming at us at light light speed is so overwhelming that it's causing something that experts call information paralysis. Uh, Neil Postman, in his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, discussed the ratio between how much information we receive versus how much information we actually put into action in our life. And he says this, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought or sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. We are glutted with information, drowning in information with no control over it and don't know what to do with it. His point is that there was once a time when the flow of information was slow enough that people could actually digest it, evaluate it, respond to it, and then apply it to their lives. But now we are bombarded with so much information that it overwhelms us. And so our response to information has moved from applying it or responding to it to simply consuming it. The endless endless death scroll. More and more and more information. 
We can watch endless TV shows of people baking cakes on Netflix. We have more access to more cake recipes than ever before, but we do less baking than ever before. That wasn't a punchline. That's actually the truth of our culture. This is our cultural age. As information flow increases, our response to this information decreases. Now, I have seen the same dynamic play out in my spiritual life. One of the most famous declarations that Jesus makes about himself is from John 14, 6. If you've been at church for anything more than two months, you probably know these words where Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. Now, I grew up in a tradition that basically believed that the truth of Jesus gets you the life of Jesus. That you learn the right content, you understand the correct and true information about Jesus, and somehow you get his life. Like you just get this right stuff in from here, up in here, and everything else somehow falls into place. I mean, that's what truth does. After all, Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So we conclude that information leads to transformation. That truth of Jesus leads to the life of Jesus. And then when it doesn't, like when we memorize Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and somehow we haven't zapped away our impatience or our anger or our selfishness from our life, or when we discover we've got way more content in our heads than we actually have love in our life or in our hearts, that can actually cause a crisis of faith. And my experience When that crisis between what we know and what we experience happens, we can either go one of two ways. First way that we can go is that we double down on our commitment to truth. I just need another Bible study, a better Bible study. Oswald Chambers wasn't working. I need a better devotional. Just need a more impactful sermon series. Because information, of course, leads to transformation. Or... If we've tried that enough times and it doesn't work, we get disillusioned and we think that perhaps there isn't enough power in our faith to actually change our life. I mean, not really. When I went to seminary, I was there to learn, to study, to digest vast quantities of spiritual information. And I was tested or praised or challenged by how well I understood the information or not. You see, my seminary experience was structured for content mastery. So I could get an A in a class on discipleship because I could regurgitate all the relevant biblical information, all the relevant ideas that are taught on discipleship without actually having ever discipled anyone. See, there was an institutional disconnect between what I knew and what I actually did. The tie between information and action had been mostly severed, just like Postman said. 
And then what happens is a guy like me leaves that institutional setting and starts pastoring a church, and guess what my priorities are? I need people to know the right things. I need them to understand truth, which of course is critical. Do not email me this week and say, so you're saying truth is not important. Do not send me that email because I'll, I'll blow a gasket because that's not what I'm saying. You're not listening if your mind goes there. Listen to what I'm saying. But I put most of my effort into teaching, getting the info to my church, giving it to them in an engaging way or an inspiring way. So I'd put on classes and I'd put on seminars and I'd recommend books and more podcasts. And there was no shortage of biblical information that were being delivered to my congregation that were being consumed by my church, but to my grief, even after this great buffet of info that was available for, uh, to be consumed, it wasn't producing disciples whose lives looked radically different than their neighbors. You see, we had way more theoretical or spiritual truth than we had on the ground changed lives. We knew way more about Jesus than we experienced of Jesus. The tie between information and action had been severed. Now, I think Jesus would say, well, duh, of course. Like, did you not read what I said to you in Matthew 7? Did you forget I didn't just say that I'm the I'm the truth and the life. There's a whole nother critical ingredient in the transformation cake that you are leaving out. Which is why I think Jesus' words are so stark and such a warning to us this morning from Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bible, open up to it. According to Jesus, if you want to be his disciple... And if you want to experience the reality of his life, you need to act on it. You can't just consume spiritual information and file it away in your mind sometime and have little or no engagement with it. Which is why Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 24, therefore, therefore, in light of my teaching that I've just given you, in light of everything I've said to you about righteousness looks like and, and how the kingdom of God actually breaks into your life, in light of everything that I've called you to as my disciple, therefore, whoever hears these words of mine, probably referring to the Sermon on the Mount that he just preached, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And this, of course, friends, is a key theme that Jesus repeats over and over again in his teaching, that it's not just enough to know his words. You have to obey them. You have to put them into practice. You have to work them out and work them in to the rhythms of your life. Let's, Jesus, let's let Jesus continue to speak. Verse 25. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
So in classic Jesus fashion, he anchors a discipleship reality in a story. A story that's easy to picture about two kinds of people who are represented by two different kinds of houses. There's the sensible person and the fool. The wise person and the fool. And the wise person is the one who hears Jesus' words and does them. And the fool in Jesus' evaluation is someone who hears Jesus' words, been exposed to Jesus' teaching, but they don't do much with it. Now hear me. The fool may like Jesus' words. The fool may read them most mornings, might underline them, might put them up on their fridge, might even put some of them to memory, but they don't act on them. Jesus' words don't alter any of their behaviors. Doesn't change how they treat their spouse. Doesn't alter what they do with their anger or what websites they visit. It doesn't change how they use their money. They just receive and consume Jesus' teaching and continue to live mostly unaffected by it. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why they don't act. Maybe they're culturally conditioned, like we are increasingly are, to respond to Jesus' uh, words just like all the other information we're bombarded with. We just take it in and then move on to the next thing. Or maybe... This has become their regular response because their time in church inadvertently inoculated them to Jesus. I apologize for using a vaccine metaphor if this is a trigger for some of you, but I think it works. Um, You probably by now know how vaccines work. Don't send me an email that they don't work. Please also don't send me that email. Just go with my metaphor, okay? You probably know how vaccines work by injecting a small part of the virus into the body. It's not enough to actually affect you or infect you, but it's enough to trigger an immune response to build up antibodies against the disease. And so I get a little bit of the, you know, the dead measles virus so that I don't actually get infected or affected by measles. My fear is that churches can inadvertently become Jesus inoculation clinics where we go and we get just a little bit of Jesus. Not enough for him to radically alter our lives, but just enough that we're comfortable with him. Enough that we like his concepts, we like that idea of heaven after we die, especially better than the alternative. We'll take that. We give him a nod at some of his teachings and some of his ethics We become so familiar with the radical things that he says that we eventually become immune to them. We can get inoculated to Jesus when we see him as a truth to be known and agreed with rather than a way to be lived. When we unhitch the information we digest about Jesus' life from the imitation we are called to into Jesus' lifestyle. 
And when this happens, we can get inoculated to Jesus, or the biblical metaphor is we become hard of heart. Now over time, your immune system is so strong that your heart becomes so impervious that you can sit in church week after week and have his words bounce right off you with no effect. You come here and you know what Jesus says about forgiveness. That you need to forgive others as you have been forgiven. You can quote the verse, but you have squirreled away resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness against some people to such a degree that Jesus' truth is trapped in the three-pound brain of yours and never sees the light of day into actually how you live and let it to deal with your real relationships or your real hurt. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Just 25-year-old Sean? Or you know what Jesus says about lust and how serious it is. Like you know that whole gouge out the eye and cut out the hand, cut off the hand stuff. But you don't do anything to curb the second or third look that you give to that attractive coworker. Your browser history shows us that you don't take Jesus' words seriously. Why? Because you've just been inoculated to them. Because information has been severed from action. And Jesus says that this is DEFCON 5 dangerous. He is warning us that churches can be filled with people who sit and hear his word week after week, but their lives show little of the vitality and the evidence of Jesus in their experience. For we have become hearers of the word, not doers of the word. We've become inoculated to him. Now the most frightening part of Jesus' parable is that Jesus says that both the fool and the wise person have heard his words. Like it would be one thing if Jesus says, the wise one is the person who heard my word, and the fool is the one who just ignores them. That's not what Jesus says. This is the scary part, that both the fool and the wise have heard his words. They are both part of the Christian community. They both listen to sermons. They both download podcasts. They both read scripture, which means that right now in most churches, Jesus could play his version of duck, duck, goose. But it's wise, wise, fool, fool, wise, fool, fool. Because they're both in the same room at the same time, including this one. According to Jesus, you can be exposed to, you can even agree with his teaching, but until you begin doing, there is no difference in your life. Simply being here in church doesn't get you Jesus' life. It's not like God is like, oh, goody. They're there on a Sunday morning sitting in the rows enduring another one of that guy's sermon, so let's wave the magic wand and let's heal all their relationships. Let's change their behavior. Let's rearrange all their priorities. Let's take away their addictions, all because they showed up and are listening and nodding. That's not how it works. All the things that Jesus did for you, 
that Jesus offers you, that Jesus died for you to have, become yours when you believe and act on your belief. Like it's one thing to know a whole lot about nutrition and it's another thing to eat healthy, right? I mean, we know this in every other sphere of life. Like I can read and study the nutrition Bible handbook, but if I keep living on quarter pounders and Twinkies, right, my waistline is gonna show it, my arteries are gonna be all clogged, and I'm on my way to a quadruple heart bypass. That's where I'm going because knowing this stuff makes no difference. Exact same principle. Andy Stanley says that Jesus' teachings are like paint. They don't do anybody any good until they're applied. And in Matthew chapter seven, it is the application that distinguishes the fool from the wise. So which one are you? I know which one I want to be. I know who I think 25-year-old Sean was. What would Jesus say when he looks at your life and he touches your head, fool or wise? I now read John 14, 6 as both three declarations of who Jesus is but also the critical things we need to be transformed into to experience the life of Jesus. Jesus isn't just the truth that leads to new life. He's also the way. And by that, Jesus is the means by which we are reconciled to the Father. That is true. But Jesus is also the means, the way we are to live now. He is the example we are to follow. He is the life that we are to emulate and imitate if we are going to have his life and truly believe that he is the truth. It's correct truth that propels us to follow Jesus into his way of living, and it's those two things together, the way and the truth that gets us the life of Jesus. You might say it like this, information about Jesus plus imitation of Jesus is what transforms us into the life of Jesus. And you need both. Truth alone is not enough. Two houses, two lives, both hear Jesus' word. One acts on it, one doesn't. And that, and that alone is what separates the fool from the wise. Now, if you're here this morning and you're like, good Grace, just <laughs> who does this guy think he is? Uh, and, and maybe you're resisting or, or maybe you're freaking out or, or maybe you're like, man, I don't know. Am I a fool or am I wise? I don't know which one I would be. Um, I can see why you'd be unsure because from the curb, both houses look the same. You can't tell them apart initially. When the, wind is, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun is shining and the birds are out, both houses look the same from the curb until the storm hits. Look what Jesus says. 
The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The, river, the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It is the storm it is the crisis, according to Jesus, that actually reveals the manner of the person we are. It reveals what actually undergirds our life. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things in Jesus' parable. Uh, the first thing I want you to notice is that the storm hits both houses. The wise and the fool alike. Those who follow the way of Jesus and those who don't both get pummeled by the storm. God doesn't shield Christ's followers from the thunder and the lightning. He doesn't shield us from the illness or hardship, only to unleash a hurricane on the unbelievers up the block. Both experience hardship. Both have catastrophic events break over their lives. Both get a terrible diagnosis. Both experience relational crisis. Both can lose a job. Both can have stuff happen to them that they can't make sense of. Jesus is brutally honest that everybody finds themselves in the path of the storm at some point. Now certainly, some storms are of our own making. Um, some behaviors are weather generators, if you know what I mean. Paul says to Timothy, the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment, but there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. What Paul is getting at is that, is that the consequences of our sinful actions always come home to roost. They always eventually show themselves. And when they do, it feels like a storm. So some storms we create, but most of them are just the weather system of living in a Genesis 3 world. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not, whether you follow Christ's way of living or don't. A storm is coming, not if, but when, not to some, but to all. And Jesus says that if the foundation of your life is built on anything other than him, his grace, his truth, his invitation to follow into his life and lifestyle, if you live your identity out of anything else, your foundation will collapse. Your house might look good from the curb for a while. It might look good in the pew on a Sunday morning, but when the storm hits, it won't last. I think Jesus is getting that, that if your identity, if your worth is, is, is anchored and rooted on anything other than who he is, and what he's spoken into your life and what he's called you to, if, you're, if, if you're, your identity is, worth on, is rooted on your looks and your dress size, if your house is built on beauty, then shingles will start flying off the moment you start getting wrinkles and stuff starts sagging. And there's no amount of Botox that will hold that house together. Or if your identity is built in what you do, your work, your position, the size of your paycheck, then retirement or illness will eventually cause you to have an implosion. 
because it, it, it'll be taken from you. And you'll be seeing that your whole identity was rooted in sand. And Jesus' point is that a lot of people who listen to him, who have heard his word, have a foundation, have a functional life foundation that is other than Jesus. And the storm will expose those things as sand. And you as foolish for building your life on it. And so therefore, storms are actually a special kind of grace, aren't they? I mean, they allow us to, they expose the foundation while there's still time to respond and change it. Now, in a way, I'm hoping that this series that we're done actually today, where I've tried to speak to you about the identity that is at the core of us as Jesus' people and, and how we can live into that identity as Jesus' place. I'm hoping that this series has been used by the Lord to shake your house a little bit. Not to guilt you or to harm you, but to graciously reveal any sand that's below the surface. To call you into a discipleship where you follow Jesus not just as the truth that gets you eternal life, but as the way to live now. The way to be fully alive. The way to be fully human. We do not become who we were redeemed to be by any other means. And that's why Jesus, in his great commission, which was the foundational text for this whole series, he says, go make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them into their new identity as children of the Father, as servants of the Son, and as missionaries of the Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. You want to know what is it, how, how do you live as a, as a child of the Father? You look to Jesus. You want to know how you're supposed to serve through life. You look to Jesus. You want to know what does it mean to be on mission? You look to Jesus because he's our way. He is the way. He is the one that we are called to emulate our lives after. And so obedience, acting on what Jesus says and calls us into is how Jesus becomes our way of life. Ben, you can come on up. Let me end with this. Disciples are apprentices of Jesus. Not content with knowing the verses that declare their identity, but they're apprentices of Jesus who are leaning into their identity through actions, through behaviors, through response, through obedience. And in so doing, they become sons and daughters like Jesus was a son. They become servants like he served. They become missionaries like he was sent on mission. Jesus, as the way and the truth, leads to Jesus as our life. Information about him plus imitation of him is what leads to transformation in him. I hope that sticks with you. I hope you believe it. I hope you act on it. Let me pray. Father, you have given us your son as a savior. Produce in us the faith to live by him, to make him our greatest desire, to make him 
our highest calling, to make him our only hope. May we, may we enter Christ as our refuge, building on him as our foundation, walking in him as our way, following him as our guide, conforming to him as our example, submitting to him as our highest authority, obeying him as our king. That is where we find your life. Help us. God, help us. Help me to live a life that demonstrates what we believe so we become people who know you and love you with our minds and our hearts and the strength of our lives for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.